if you just look at human history, when empires collapse, the peripheries go first. And California is basically the powerful periphery of the United States. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what the future of the United States is, but you know, from from everything that I can see, and this is, you know, this is where I'll put on my political science professor cap. The United States is on a decline. I think when we look back, the peak of the United States is going to be the 1990s. Welcome back to the California Dream. My name is Darren Brown. So a few days ago, I interviewed a gubernatorial candidate in the recall election coming up in just a couple weeks. And before we get to the interview, I wanted to say a few things about the recall election. I talked about it a little earlier, but I wanted to add a few more thoughts. So it is my public position on the recall to vote no. And this is not an endorsement of Gavin Newsom in any way. I think Newsom's job as governor has been at best mixed. I think he's a poor administrator, has made a lot of bad decisions, and is really using his time in the governor's office more as a catapult to federal election, and bigger ambitions that he has. So again, I'm not going to defend Governor Newsom. But here's the deal with the recall. The recall process is fundamentally flawed in its structure because the incumbent is not allowed to run as a candidate in the list of candidates to replace the governor. And because the election is first past the post, and there are dozens of candidates, this means that it is possible for someone to sneak into the governorship with very slim support from the voters. In the most extreme scenario, we could have somebody who becomes governor receiving less than 20% of the vote. And I've talked about one of these candidates, Larry Elder. And this is someone who has positions that would be supported by a very small uh, number of Californians. If you were to actually list his policy positions and some of the things that he's said in the past, you would find that he has support that is around 20% or less. And yet he could become the next governor. So that is clearly not. A democratic process. And that's the primary reason I will be voting no and that I will encourage everyone else to vote no is not as an endorsement of Gavin Newsom, but rather as a way of stopping this sneaky process of becoming governor. Now, let's talk about the possible outcomes of the election. 
the election does still appear to be very close. Although, if I had to predict, I do predict that the recall will fail between 5 to 10 percentage points. But let's see what the possibilities are. One possibility is that Newsom is recalled, and I think the, uh, the Democrat that is running, who is uh, getting the highest numbers, uh, could become governor. In that case, uh, it would be a strange situation, but I don't think anything is going to come from that. We'll have a governor that few people have heard of for a little over a year, and then we'll have another election. Another possibility is that the recall is successful and one of these fringe Republicans uh, gets into office, especially someone like Larry Elder. In this case, I would expect that, uh, that whoever this person is would be subject to a recall themselves, and I would expect that effort to go quite quickly. Even if someone is only in office for... 15 months, they can do a lot of damage. And when you look at someone like Larry Elder, when you look at the fact that he would be in charge of the executive branch of the state, there's a lot of decisions he can make, and there's a lot of damage he can do just in 15 months or so. So I think it would be worth the effort to recall him and start that process of recalling him uh, the day after the election. I would support that. This will raise a lot of hackles from um, those who voted for him or those who supported the recall, but, you know, payback's a bitch, right? The process can be abused one way. It can be used another way. So if you don't like that, well, maybe now you understand why a lot of people are opposed to this process at the moment. Now, what if the recall is unsuccessful and Gavin Newsom... Uh, remains in office, which I think is uh, the more likely situation. I think the real danger here is that the outcome of the recall election will be questioned in much the same way as the 2020 presidential election. In other words, there will be accusations of this being a rigged election, of fraudulent votes, of hacked election machines, and so on. And I think this could be a real problem. And I can very well see these, uh, these people who are taking to the street, who are provoking this violence, um, who are still carrying the stop the steal narrative from 2020. I can see them uh, making for some real problems uh, if the recall is not successful. So I hope I'm wrong. Um, and I hope that that's not much of a problem. but. I think that's something that we might have to deal with. So those are some of my additional thoughts on the recall. Let's get to the interview. My guest today is a lecturer in the political science department at San Francisco State University. Uh, he's also an activist for California Issues and Cal Exit, and he is currently a candidate for the governor's race in the recall election on September 14th. I'd like to welcome Michael Loebs. Hello. How are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. Holding together. How about yourself? I'm good. It's kind of busy with the start of school, um, but hanging in there. 
for sure. <laughs> Why don't we start with um, just a little bit about yourself? Um, you know, who are you? Uh, what's your background? Uh, how did you kind of get involved in in, in politics? Uh, so yeah, I uh, I was I was uh, I was born uh, in the East Bay or in Alameda County, as, as we refer uh, in in the Bay Area. I, I grew up in Alameda County. Both my parents are from Alameda County. I've lived in California my entire life. I uh, became uh, I started studying. I mean, I've always been kind of a, a politically astute child. Uh, I was raised. Uh, in a very strongly uh, union pro-democratic party family, uh, which means I was raised with a very healthy dislike of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd been, I'd been politically uh, active and interested for a long time. I ended up studying political science uh, as my field of study, probably around like the early aughts. So I've been, I've been a political science student for about two decades now. And uh, I've been teaching at San Francisco State since 2013, which is where I got my master's degree. Uh, I came to the California National Party in 2016, as I said, after having been a lifelong Democrat. And my primary reasons for that was it was actually, you know, I think it's probably a common thing. It was the, the 2016 election, although it wasn't so much the outcome of the 2016 election. For me, what really struck the whole thing home is through 2016, I'd been thinking about California. I'd been thinking about the idea of California independence, or at the very least, the idea that California politics was being ignored and relegated to the background, even by Californians themselves. And on election night, uh, I think it was Tom Brokaw or somebody was, was making a commentary. And he mentioned that uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's campaign headquarters were about four or five blocks away from each other in midtown Manhattan. And I just had this kind of moment where I was like, why am I as a Californian sitting here watching these two people duke it out in Manhattan for a seat of power in Washington, D.C., 3,000 miles away, where none of these people actually care about California or its concerns or its problems or its issues. And we're all just sitting here transfixed by our television screens. And I just asked, I just, I just realized that every moment we're doing that is a moment we're not paying attention to California. It's a moment that problems in California are not being addressed and, and fixed. And that, that for me was really the moment where I said to myself, I realized that if Californians don't pay attention and don't care about California, nobody else is going to. Nobody else is going to fix California's problems, and that that it became our responsibility to actually start paying attention and doing that. Yeah, I have very similar feelings. Um, the 2016 election, that was definitely um, a turning point. I didn't really um, become completely in favor of independence at that point, but it definitely got me thinking about a lot of things. And it's true that I think that Washington kind of does look at California either as like, I think you've described it as a chess piece in the, the national conversation or just as a place to go raise money just to fundraise. Yeah, absolutely. And do you ever hear on the national media, which is pretty much East coast media, do you ever really hear them talk in, in depth about anything on the West Coast at all? I mean, maybe they do sometimes, but they will amplify the, the most trivial kind of uh, petty stories from the East Coast and very significant problems over here they never talk about. Um, and I feel like it's the same way with, uh, with Congress and this, the federal government in general, that we're kind of an afterthought 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, what for me, one of the most uh, stark visuals of it is if you're if you ever get a chance, bring up bring up a, a map of federally owned land in the United States. And pretty much from the Great Plains east, there's virtually none. And from the, the Rocky Mountains all the way to the Pacific Coast, it's just tons and tons of federally owned land. I mean, in essence, the Western United States is less part of the United States than almost a colony of the United States, uh, with vast tracts of federally owned land for exploitable resources. Uh, and you know, even California is 45% owned by the, the federal government. I think Nevada is something like 86% owned by the federal government, which is why they can dump all their nuclear waste and yucca flats and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, despite the, the economic and cultural and technological importance of California, it's really seen as the periphery of the United States. It's, it's an afterthought. And as you say, regardless of, I, I think the thing is, in terms of, of political policy, Democrats at this point are basically assured victory in California. I mean, California's soon to be 54 electoral votes for president would go to a cardboard box with a D on it as long as the DNC gave it the nomination. And Republicans are never going to get anything here. So a Republican administration in D.C. has no incentive to pay attention to California. And the Democratic regime in Washington, D.C. has no need to because we're guaranteed to go for them anyway. All they do is they go to Silicon Valley and Hollywood and engage in fundraisers for both the Democrats and Republicans and take that money from California fundraising and go and spend it on races in Ohio or Michigan or Georgia where they actually are competing. Uh, and we're just we're just sort of the piggy bank for for this competition between Team Red and Team Blue that, that takes place thousands of miles away. Yeah, I talked about um, the Nina Turner race a couple times in previous episodes and my my issue with that was not um i mean i was disappointed in the outcome i i would prefer to see her win obviously i mean i think it would be better that she would win that primary but my issue was there was a lot of people in california progressives in california who really felt personally invested in that race i know them and it's like wait a second if there's this election that's 2,500 miles away in some part of Ohio, um, you know, we can root for, you know, the, the lefty or we can root for the progressive to win because we support them and because it'll make life better for them. They'll have better government. But why do we feel like we're held hostage to an election result that far away? You know, why do we feel that their, the, the, her loss sets us back? It sets the like it sets the progressive movement back in California, or it sets back anything we can do. Why is that? Because we think everything has to be done through Washington, because we're stuck in this federal system, and that's what I have really come to kind of wrap my mind around. Is we've spent years and years and years trying to affect change by affecting these races outside of California. I mean, I don't know how much money a lot of us have donated or time and phone banking and all this stuff to races that are outside of California, um, including like Nina Turner's race. And at some point it's like, you know, should we just stop and think, why are we doing this? Why, why can't we just have control of our own decisions? Why do we feel like we're beholden to the outcomes of something that's happening a long ways away in a place that a lot of us have never been to and many of us don't know anyone who lives there? 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, I think that's I think that's a crucial point is that we get caught up in that sort of that sort of mindset. But it's not actually going to fix our problems. Bernie Sanders isn't going to do anything about PG&E. AOC isn't going to put out the wildfires. Stacey Abrams isn't going to fix EDD. Like these are specifically California issues. And this idea that the the progressive left or or, or even the right or whoever you have, the idea that anything fixing California is going to come from outside California is just an absurd idea. These people don't actually care about us. You And, and that's the thing that I think has really gotten to me about this recall is, you know, you see these ads with Elizabeth Warren about stopping the Republican steal. And it's like, this isn't your business. This is California. What do you know? What do you, Elizabeth Warren, know about California? What do you know about the issues taking place here? What do you know about? All they care about is Gavin Newsom, who's been set up for the last 20 years by the California Democratic Party to be its standard bearer, to be its golden boy. I mean, I'm in San Francisco. The man has been running for president since before Willie Brown appointed him to the Board of Supervisors. That's been his thing. He's been set up by the Gettys to do that for decades. Uh, and so obviously the National Democratic Party is concerned that a figure like Newsom that they've built up for so long is is facing this recall. And I mean, I'm not, I, I should point out, the California National Party and, and I myself, we did not, uh, we don't support the recall. Uh, we didn't We didn't gather signatures. We didn't make it happen. It's a gigantic waste of money. But since it's happening, uh, it seems important to us to go out there and say, like, look, the very fact that this recall is happening is just a sign of this dysfunction of the two-party system. This recall is really about Washington Democrats and Republicans fighting each other for an important strategic. They're basically they're playing risk and they're fighting for Irtusk or something like that. Nine of them actually care about California. What they care about is a Republican taking that blue piece or the blue team hanging on to it in the face of adversity. But none of these people care about California itself. Yeah, it's it's a proxy war. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and yeah, that's that's really what frustrates me is 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 and it's similar to what happened again, I'm I'm from San Francisco and when Newsom ran for mayor here in two thousand three, uh, he wound up going into a runoff with, with Mac Gonzalez, who's now the, the, the public defender here. And every other candidate who lost, I think it was uh, one of the Aliotos, uh, Amiano, a few other, they all endorsed Gonzalez. And of course, Newsom had to bring out the Clintons. Newsom had to bring out the big wigs of the National Democratic Party because he didn't actually have support in San Francisco itself that much. Like San Francisco politicians, San Francisco, uh, you know, members of the San Francisco political community weren't necessarily backing Gavin Newsom. This gigantic Democratic Party apparatus was. And he's working in the same vein. He's basically bringing in the big guns of the federal Democratic Party because he's trying to make it an election about anything other than the fact that, frankly, Gavin Newsom isn't a very good governor. Now, do I think he's less scary than Republican alternatives? That's another question. But uh, Gavin Newsom is a person who is using California to advance his career. He and, he and Kamala Harris came in into San Francisco politics at the same time. And again, I think like what we wind up with, we can look at people like Garcetti. We can look at people like Becerra. These are people who are moving on to these Washington, D.C. jobs as if California's problems all got fixed under their watch and now they're going to go fix the U.S. It's like, no, what they care about is advancing their career. And meanwhile, we're back here with California on fire, running out of water, desertifying, 
you know, people who have been unemployed for, for a year haven't been able to get through on the phone in that time. And these people don't care about that. They care about moving up the chain of political importance. And I think that does a great disservice to a place with 40 million people, to the world's fifth largest economy, to this extremely internationally influential and important place. And it's just disregarded as if we were South Dakota. Yeah, I've heard you talk about um, how the, the two-party system, I think, disempowers California. And maybe we can talk about that a little more. We've already started talking about it. So my way of looking at this is that these are the two major American parties. They're, they're American political parties. And a lot of people, when they hear about the idea of California independence, they will say, well, but that means just California will just be run by Democrats and the Democrats are not so great and they haven't done a, a good job. So how does that really help us? And my response to that is, yes, but there's not really going to be Democrats after if, if we are able to separate that because they're an American party. So there's no point to them after. Right. There's no point to maintaining the Democratic Party. They're a national American party. And to me, it would really free up uh, a lot more political representation if we were out of that. I mean, I don't, I mean, obviously, if you compare the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, the Republican Party is, in my mind, it's just batshit crazy. I mean, it's just gone off the deep end. And so really, they're the only game in town. And so it's a one party state. But that, I, I don't think a one party state is healthy in any sense. I don't care what party it is. If there's super majorities of of everything, you're necessarily just kind of by definition um, minimizing dissent and minimizing voices. And I could easily see if if we kind of were to break out of that stranglehold of uh, the national blue and red fight, and we had some kind of parliamentary system, you know, maybe a multi-party, you know, a system where you have uh, proportional representation. Proportion, yes proportional representation uh, in multi-party districts and so on. I could see there being five to six parties that would kind of compete. I could see there would be um, kind of an establishment Democrat party that, um, you know, has the Nancy Pelosi's and the um, Gavin Newsom's and things like that. There would be more of a kind of a progressive Bernie Sanders type of party. There may even be a little party to the left of that. There are some people that are a little to the left of that. There would be like a Green Party, a Libertarian, maybe the kind of business conservative party. I mean, the point is that there would be all these, and none of them would be able to achieve an outright majority on their own. So they would have to talk to each other and form coalitions. And it would just be much more democratic than what we have now, where what we have now is people anywhere in California, whether they're on the left or the center or the right, you have to go through the Democratic Party to do anything. So like the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, the the progressives in the Democratic Party, they're constantly butting their head up against California uh, Democratic Party because that's the only route to go. You can't. I mean, what are you going to do? It's the only game in town. And that's just not a good situation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of the big thing is that, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, it is California is a Democratic one party state. They have the entire state executive. They have all 10 state executive or eight, eight state executive offices. They've got not just a supermajority, but I think about a 78 percent 
super, super majority in both houses of legislature, in the Assembly and the State Senate. And to my mind, the purpose of a democracy is political competition. If you're at the point where all of the cards are being held by one party, that to me is a sure sign that democratic competition has gone away. And the thing is, you're never going to get a viable third party in the United States. There, first of all, it's just through historical experience we can see that. Many times have had third parties tried to get a national foothold in the United States, and just by experience, it's never worked. And structurally, one of the reasons for that is, is you know, the structure of the Electoral College. You know, you imagine a state, let's imagine you have, you know, Bernie starts his own lefty party. You know, you have a state where, uh, you know, President presidential election time comes around and mainstream Democrats get 35% of the vote and uh, uh, some our revolution party gets 25% of the vote and Republicans get 40%. Well, even though 60% of the people voted for a, a, a moderate to left party, because those Republicans got the most votes, 40% of the votes, they get all the electoral college votes. So it's just not structurally feasible to set up a three-party system in the United States. But I think we could in California. And I, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that would make that possible is at least beginning inroads to a proportional representation system. So, for example, in the California National Party, one of the first big reforms in terms of government that we would like to push is, first of all, a much expanded assembly. So right now, California has 80 members of the assembly and 40 members of the Senate. That number has been enshrined in the California Constitution since 1879. You know, here we are with 40 million people now, which means our assembly members represent half a million people. Our state senators have to represent a million people. That's that's not representation by any stretch of the imagination. So one of the things that we push for in the California National Party is expanding the state assembly by law, setting it up so that an assembly member can represent no more than 100,000 people. And so that would lead to an assembly at this point of approximately, it's true, approximately 400 members. But if that sounds absurd to you, you've got to remember Canada, with its 35 million people, has a parliament with something like 338, you know, Great Britain, which has approximately, uh, you know, 65 or 70 million people, has, has a House of Commons with 650 members. Germany, with its 80 million, uh, million plus people. Uh, I, I think the Bundestag has something like 708. So that really just puts us more on par with modern democracies around the globe instead of something like the United States, where, again, they've enshrined by law these 435 members of the House of Representatives for the last 100 years, even though the population of the United States has tripled. So you expand the, the size of the assembly and you also convert the state Senate in California to a proportional representation system. Because that's the thing you wind up with with a lot of these alternative parties is that the libertarians or the greens actually have, you know, not not an insignificant amount of support statewide throughout California, but never really strongly enough in a single district. You start instituting, you know, you increase the size of the state Senate to say 50 members. Any party that statewide gets at least two percent of the vote gets one senator. You get one senator for about each two percent of the vote you get. And will that immediately shift things? Probably not. But it will start getting Libertarians and Greens and hopefully California National Party members into the state Senate, which will start lending credibility to the idea that other parties are possible. Um, and I think that's really significant because, yeah, as you say, the thing is the Democratic Party in California is really just where you have to go if you want power. 
And you wind up with, in essence, you know, practically socialists in the Bay Area with mainstream, you know, pro-business moderate Democrats, along with sort of Central Valley Democrats who may agree on nothing except for the fact that they recognize you have to be a Democrat to open those doors to donations, to open those doors to choice committee assignments in the legislature. You have to be a Democrat to have power in California at this point. And uh, I think I think fundamentally that's what we're seeing is that's the problem is it means the Democrats never have to go to voters, never have to be held accountable. They just sort of fight interior to their party structure apparatus. So the goal of any politician is to get into that party structure apparatus. And, and people have fought into this. There was, uh, I remember, I think it was last year, there was a young woman running for state senator in my district in San Francisco. And she was running as a quote unquote, you know, independent voice, but she was running as a Democrat. And I just wanted to say to her, how do you think you can be an independent voice while being part of the structure of the Democratic Party? What could be more of the power structure of California than the Democratic Party? And again, I think people get into this mindset that because of the battle going on between Democrats and Republicans in Washington, D.C., that the Democrats are some kind of underdog. But I mean, in California, that's absolutely not true. When you have all of the executive state offices and you have a, a three-quarters supermajority in both houses of the legislature, you can't blame Republicans for what's wrong in California anymore. It's not those seven Republicans sitting in the state Senate that are screwing things up. It's not those seven Republicans in the state Senate that are preventing us from doing anything about PG&E. It's the fact that three quarters of the Democrats in the legislature take money from PG&E and doing something like converting PG&E into a public utility that can't donate money to candidates is not in the best interest of these elected Democrats who take money from them. So things just are simply not going to get fixed, but they're very astute at still pushing this kind of underdog narrative that, that they're, they're constantly assailed and under attack, despite the fact that they really not only hold, not only have the Democrats stacked the deck in their favor, they put their thumb on the scale, you know, just, just to make things even more. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me how, how easily they get away with it because they appeal to that national rhetoric. That's why you see Gavin Newsom this whole time talking about Donald Trump isn't running for governor of California, but Gavin Newsom just can't shut up about Donald Trump as if this were all about Donald Trump and not his own personal failings as an administrator over the last few. So it's very, it's, 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 it, you have to at least respect their ability to have convinced so many Californians to go along with this narrative that rationally doesn't actually make any sense. Yes. Getting back to, you were talking about 2016, and that was when you started to question um, some of the narrative, especially um, nationally. Um can you go over what is the history of the California National Party and um, kind of how did it come about and uh, what are its goals and purposes? Yeah, so the party, I cannot speak too much to the early history of the party. I didn't get involved until 2016. It'd been around for, for a year or two before that. Uh, Theo Slater was our former, uh, our former chair before I took over. Uh, but since 2016, uh, that was definitely, I mean, obviously the 2016 election uh, really changed things in terms of the way people started thinking about California and California politics. We did get a lot more interest after the 2016 election, uh, which was a very interesting thing because I feel like a lot of that was a response to Trumpism, 
was a response to the dumpster fire of the United States at that time, which I think was useful. Definitely, it definitely helped increase interest, but it wasn't really a sustainable message. Uh, you know, Trump, the Trump boogeyman wouldn't always be there. Uh, so I think I think the California National Party over the years has shifted uh, into into what we are now, which is more explicitly an exclusively pro-California party, a recognition that, as we've been talking about, nobody's going to fix California's problems unless we do, and that neither the Democrats, or the Republicans are, are are necessarily interested in what's best for California. They're best. They're interested in what's best for their careers, what's best for their party. Uh, and the California National Party, what defines us is being an explicitly pro-California party, not tied to ideology, focusing on the complexity and diversity and uniqueness of California. And that means not being beholden to ideology, being beholden to certain types of left-right strategies, but recognizing how complex California is. So, for example, uh, you know, we support a system of uh, UBI, negative income tax, automatic Medi-Cal enrollment for all. And, you know, we're often told how how progressive those ideas are, which, first of all, is always very interesting to me uh, because, you know, I think what, what was his name? He was thinking about running for governor this year. Uh, Cernovich, is that his name? You know, he's basically a right wing misogynist racist, but he supports UBI. He supports Medi-Cal for all. Uh, he just doesn't think anybody should be allowed to come into California and suck off the resources of our UBI and Medi-Cal for all. But so we, we, we support policies like that, which, which are fundamentally defined as progressive. We also support, uh, more county-based, uh, gun regulation and licensing because fundamentally guns are different in many parts of California. It's different to own a gun in Lassing County than it is in Los Angeles County. I tell people all the time, people who are who are anti-firearm, it's like, look, if I lived in Trinity County, which has no city, no, there are no incorporated cities in Trinity County. Everything is done by the county sheriff's department. If something's going on in my house and there are three county mounties driving around and maybe one will get to me in 70 minutes or something, I want a gun. But does that mean we need to have identical gun rights in San Francisco or Los Angeles? So, I mean, I think we have to respect that complexity and not just kind of have a knee jerk reaction of kind of like either big gun, you know, big guns go bang and they're bad versus like everybody should be carrying a concealed gun everywhere into their school rooms and stuff like that. That it may be a bit more of a complex issue than that. And I think it's easier to get to that point to recognize things like another big one for the CMP, the gas tax. The gas tax is so horribly regressive. It's flat throughout California. It's very course, regressive. Yeah. Yeah, exceptionally. And of course, I live in San Francisco. I can ride a bus or walk everywhere. If I live, you know, in Alturas, you know, or 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 if I live in in Wairica, I'm going to need a car. And not only that, I'm in places in California that generally have the lowest per capita income rates. So the people who need the cars the most to just get around because there's not the density for mass transit, you can't just go to somebody in happy camp and say, we'll just take the train. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, and I think there is a tendency, and I think that is a problem with California politics, and again, the centrality of the Democrats, is that there has been an emphasis on sort of blue urban coastal communities, not really understanding the complexity of issues outside that small part of California. Um, and so the California National Party is really a party that wants to respect 
the fact that California is a complex and diverse and unique place and that we can't get solutions to our problems just by uh, making sort of ideological judgments. We have to look at the specificity of the issues that face California. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think we've moved away from, from during the Trump era. Again, it was very much about like, here's what's wrong with the United States. And I think, I think we are moving into a place that's a lot more about here's what can be done about California. And, and, and the, one of the main things that needs to be done about California is, is reintroducing genuine democratic competition, which means a challenge to the one party democratic party state. And, but as you were, the, the Republicans are dead. The Republicans are by and large a toxic brand in California. When it comes to libertarians or greens, they're ideologically driven. You either agree with them or you don't. You either think driver's licenses are nonsense or you don't, you know, so. We need a party like the California National Party that says we're not going to be attached to ideological purity. We're going to be attached to pragmatic solutions that work, that take into account the complexity of California. And again, it's really easy to, to fall into this trap of the party binary, but it's really destroying us. And especially when you look at, you know, you you can live in Berkeley and you have your election happen in Berkeley and you can pick between your four Democrats or you can live in Inyo County and pick between your four Republicans. But none of that is genuine dem uh, de genuine democratic competition. Uh, so kind of bringing that to California, I think is a really necessary first step. And, and I think a party like the California National Party can do that because it is focused on solutions rather than ideology, because it's focused on problem solving. Yeah, I think that's a real selling point for some of the more rural, um... Republican-leaning areas of the state that, look, you probably would have more of a voice um, if this were set up differently. I don't think it's a good idea to write off parts of the state, um, just not just politically, but I mean, I just don't think it's good. It's just not a good thing to do just kind of from an ethical standpoint. I mean, what's the point in just writing off whole groups of people? I mean, they're Californians, right? I mean, if we're going to call ourselves California, that means we're all Californians, even if we disagree and, um, and have different, different needs and issues. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, somebody, and I think this is, I, I say this to people, I say, look, somebody, somebody who lives in, somebody who lives in Susanville is as much of a Californian as you are. Somebody, somebody who lives in Wairika is as much of a Californian as you are. And I think, you know, I've talked to people who, who live in places like Tuolumne County, who live in places, uh, you know, like Inyo, like Mono, and they say, you know, yeah, Republicans tend to dominate here, but it's not so much because people in Butte County love the Republican Party so much. It's that they view the Democrats as these people in Sacramento who make decisions that affect us and we have absolutely no control over them because their majorities come from the Bay Area, because their majorities come from Los Angeles, because their majorities come from these places where we have no electoral, you know, electoral influence. You know, people in Inyo are like, why would I vote for a Democrat and send them to Sacramento so that they can take more of our water and ship to Los Angeles County and just give us nothing in return? Why would I support the party that goes to Sacramento to do that? But there's no particular among many people there, there's no particular love for the Republicans. It's just seen as the only other conceivable option. A lot of people in California are just feeling like they're not being heard. And so, you know, I say this to people all the time, and it's especially people who are very, very tied into sort of 
you know, progressive left points of view, I say to them, look, I have sympathy for the state of Jefferson. I don't agree with a lot of the policies that state of Jefferson pushes, but their idea that we have been ignored by Sacramento for so long is absolutely true. And so I would, you know, I always say, this is what we need to do. We need to go to Siskiyou and we need to say like, look, let's talk. Let's not argue. Let's not fight. Let's not try to like get another victory for team red versus team blue. Let's see where we can work, where we can cooperate. And part of the way we can do that, I think, is through greater decentralization in California with more emphasis on local representatives, on county representatives, on people who are more directly accountable to the voters. Because if people are going to make decisions that affect the people in that area, they should be made by people who are directly accountable to those voters. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we don't have a California-wide environmental policy or California-wide resource management or California-wide civil rights. But, you know, a lot of really important things. How do you want to handle, you know, cannabis has to be legal throughout California, but do you want to allow it to be grown there? Yes or no? What kind of taxation do you want to put on it? What sort of sales do you want to do? I think that's the kind of thing that, yeah, Modoc County can have a different rule than Mariposa County, can have a different rule than Imperial County. You know, what, you know, how you deal with your school boards, all these sorts of things. I think I'm much more into the idea of, of returning electoral control to voters, whereas the Democratic Party is much more interested in centralizing more and more in Sacramento, because that's where their power ultimately resides with this monopoly that they hold in the state government. And so more and more things get centralized in Sacramento and more and more people in California get ignored and disenfranchised and feel like they're not part of the California narrative. That's why you wind up with, you know, I've got friends, uh, you know, a friend of mine whose who's family's in Motown in, in Modesto, and he's always talking about like, yeah, there are those people you hear about on Fox News, the anti-California California, because they hear in Fox News about, oh, terrible California and what it's doing and stuff like that. And it's because they don't feel involved. They don't feel like they're being listened to. They don't feel like they have genuine representation. And so, again, what's in, that's the question I think we have to ask. What do we want? Do we want to steamroll people with outcomes that, a, you know, a certain percentage of Californians find desirable? Or do we want to embrace genuine democratic values, which means sometimes places in parts of California where I don't live may make decisions I wouldn't make? Just like in San Francisco, me and other voters here may make decisions that they wouldn't make out in Plumas. And that's okay, as long as we have a certain agreement to cooperate, to negotiate, to compromise, to try to find baselines of standards of behavior that we can agree upon across California. And I think it's just too simple for both sides of this argument, people who are devotedly Democrats or Republicans or devotedly conservative or progressive, to just say, no, there's nothing you can do to deal with those people. And I guess perhaps I'm naive, but I don't think that's true. I think that's a narrative that's pushed by the Democratic and Republican Party, because the Democrats and Republicans in California benefit from the people of California feeling that you can't possibly negotiate with the other side. It keeps you in team red or team blue instead of converting you to team California, where we all get together and actually talk about our problems and try to solve. Now, the CNP, I know, focuses a lot on internal issues in California and um decentralization and um, that type of thing. But also, does CNP have an official position on CalExit or California independence? Um, 
And if so, could you describe it? Yeah, yeah. We we absolutely we we definitely uh, we absolutely. So so let, let's be let's be firm here. We are a pro California party. Our get our goal and aim is to always support policies that we think are best for California as a specific place on Earth. And we as a party fundamentally support California independence as the ultimate policy, which is best for California. Now, if you're, you know, if you as a voter are not into the idea of California independence, but you are interested in breaking this kind of two-party binary, I would invite, I would still invite you in. I would hope that after, after hearing the data, after, after hearing the arguments, thinking about it calmly and rationally, you would say, yes, this does make sense. I understand why California independence really just is, is the most rational conclusion to this argument. But for me, at this point, the CMP is really more about giving that pro-California narrative, but 100% absolutely undeniable. The ultimate goal of the party is California independent. And we would want to do that through a referendum of the California people. Obviously, you wouldn't it'd be nonsensical to force independence on the people of California against their will. Uh, but I, I, I do genuinely believe that in time, uh, if, if you present the if you present the arguments and, and you show people in California how really unfixably bad we have it under the federal system, that people will see the benefits of a place like California being independent. And I think that's important, not just for California. I think it's important internationally. Honestly, I think it's probably even important for the United States um, because one of the things I hear constantly is like, oh my God, if California leaves, you're pretty much just surrendering the United States to the Republicans because so many Democrats and so much democratic power come from the United States. To which my response is no, what that would do is it would force the federal Democratic Party to stop relying on those guaranteed coastal votes and actually try to appeal to the working class of middle America, which used to be the strength of the Democratic Party, that they're continually surrendering to Republicans and just relying on winning New York and winning Massachusetts and winning California and winning in these various places. I think it would force the Democratic Party in the United States to actually be an appealing party to Americans again, which it has been failing to do for decades. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could, I, I think there, I think there are many, many salient reasons why California should be independent. And I, I could get into so many of them. Obviously one of the big ones is, is unequal representation, or rather I should say unfair, but equal representation in the Senate, which is just never going to go away. Um, I think that's that in terms of representation, that's a huge one. California has 40 million people. Wyoming has 500,000. Wyoming has fewer people than the city and county of San Francisco, but it gets the same two senators that California does. Los Angeles County, with its 10 million people, is bigger than 41 U.S. states, and it's just sort of stuck with with the same two senators, you know, it, it, California's two senators. If you take the, the smallest states that equal 40 million people, it's 22 states. So those 22 states get 44 senators, nearly half of the Senate. And we only have two. And there's always the response, well, you get this representation based on population in the House of Representatives, so it's fair. But it's the Senate that approves treaties. It's the Senate that approves ambassadors. It's the Senate that approves cabinet positions. It's the Senate that approves Supreme Court justices. 
So, so fundamentally, whatever sort of population-based House of Representatives we have, that's worthless. It's the Senate where the power lives. And it's interesting, if you ever you know, crack open your copy of the Constitution and check out Article 5, there are only two things in the entire Constitution that cannot be changed by amendment. Just two things that you cannot change by amendment. You cannot ban the importation of slaves before 1808, and you can't get rid of equal representation in the Senate. So that's just as, as long as there is a U.S. Constitution that is built in there, California will continue to lack any sort of significant Senate power. So I think that's a really big one. I think for me, one of the most fundamentally important ones, and, it, and I know it's a very unsexy one, but I think it's a really crucial one. Under the U.S. Constitution, California cannot engage in independent international trade. And the idea that the world's fifth largest economy cannot engage in its own trade with other nations, that we have to go through the federal government to deal with our trading partners, I think is just utterly absurd. If Trump wants to start a trade war with China and California farmers suffer, then that's what happens. You know, if Biden wants to, you know, redo, you know, you know, uh, our trade agreements with, you know, Canada and Mexico tomorrow, there's nothing we can do about it. And that's just so utterly absurd that, that uh, an economy of our size is just is just effectively disenfranchised from engaging in inter, international commerce. That just it seems absurd to me. So yeah, I mean, I think I could I could go off all day about various reasons why, rationally speaking, California independence makes sense. Uh, but yeah, uh, definitely the California National Party. That is that is the ultimate long game goal. Uh, but I mean, again, before that, the hope is to do things like introduce a more coherent government system with an expanded assembly and a and a, a, a proportional representation senate to get that 45 percent of federal land back to californians and of course especially right now considering that a vast majority of where those fires are taking place are on federal land which isn't being taken care of by the bureau of land management you know why don't we rake it because it's not ours you know give it to us and we could actually take care of it or better yet you know take some of it and give it back to first nation communities you know there are many things we could do with that land uh, you know, all, all sorts of issues ultimately just come back to our problematic arrangement with the federal government. And so I think getting people in the door with the idea that the two-party system isn't solving California's problems is, is a starting place. And I think there's a lot that needs to be fixed there. But absolutely, our end goal uh, is is independence for California, which I just think makes so much sense. It, it, it almost doesn't need justifying. But of course, I've been doing this for a while, so I would think that, I suppose. Yeah, trade may be not too sexy, but it's super important. I mean, that affects um, that affects a lot of different industries. It affects almost everyone in some way or another. Another one that I could think of that is maybe not quite as sexy is uh, foreign policy. Mm. Um, you know, the military. We don't have a. I mean, we have the United States military. So if we want to change our diplomatic relations with other countries or you know, we don't want to send troops somewhere. You know, we don't have control over, we don't want to go to war with somebody. Well, I mean, we don't have control over that decision. Uh, that's an important one. My big uh, personal issue um, that we were talking about earlier, and this is really what kind of turned the corner for me, was healthcare. I helped out on Bernie's 2020 campaign, and that was really, that was really my last hope. I guess um, it was like a Hail Mary for me. I was thinking maybe, maybe 
if uh, if he is able to get into office, we can start to change the other direction just a little bit and make a little progress, and then we'll be at least heading in the right direction. And then Super Tuesday came, and that was just like, I was in like a funk for like a week after that, um, because I knew after Super Tuesday, I knew that the the opportunity for making any significant progress towards single payer or Medicare for all or national universal health care had been set back at least 10 or 15 years, maybe more that that's how long we'd have to wait. And it's like, I did I just, I don't want to wait that long. I'm sorry. And so, you know, it's like, well, what are the options that, I mean, you left me, you know, there's no other options that you've left me now. Um, so that was something that was real uh, turning point for me was that issue. And and now though, now it's not just individual issues like that. Given what's happened the past six to 12 months, to me, America is becoming a much more violent place. It's the, the violence is escalating. And, um, you know, you're starting to see in many parts of the country, these street level brawls and, um, and, and open violence. And I think that's only going to get worse as we go on. And so it's like, we're being dragged down into this. I mean, this is, I mean, you see this in, in Los Angeles just a couple of weeks ago, we had, uh, you know, proud boys and there was stabbings and, um, you got journalists assaulted. So for me at this point, it's about the issues as well, but I see the country is just going in a very dark direction. And so it's also, I look at it as almost self-preservation or self-protection that the country is going a very dark direction. We want to make sure that we're, that we're covering all our bases as far as, you know, not going that direction ourselves as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, it's an important point because yeah, I mean, by and large, I, I have to be honest, I don't, I don't, I don't think about the United States a lot. Uh, I, 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 I've lived in California my whole life. I won't pretend to understand the United States. I just know that, uh, as, as, without putting too fine a point on it, as a, a fairly visually, uh, stri- I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Cantonese Jew, uh, and my, and my values come from California. So let's just say when I'm in Wyoming or South Carolina, I, I stick out pretty well. Uh, so I can't pretend to understand fully what's going on in the United States. Uh, but I, 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 what it looks like to me as, as somebody who thinks of himself as an outsider is in the early 21st century, the United States is undergoing a major social upheaval about trying to define what the United States is. And I feel like that's a struggle that doesn't really involve California. Exactly. I feel like that's a struggle that really involves a lot of other contentious groups and issues in the United States. And I really just don't think California has a dog in that fight. I think, again, like, you know, Proud Boys showing up at, uh, you know, the Roost or something on Los Feliz or something like that, you know, like they did a few years ago, is really just an example of that kind of uh, American identity struggle bleeding over here. And, you know, it's certainly not like California, you know, I'm old enough to remember the, the Pete Wilson years in the 90s. It's not like we haven't had our times like that. Um, but I feel like as a, as, a, as a community, California is starting to get a firmer grasp of, of who we are and what it means to be a Californian. I mean, more than, you know, they just talked about in the census how 
you know, the, the quote unquote white population in the United States is shrinking. And I think we're already, I'd like to think that in much of California, we're already at the point that people would say, you can't define what a Californian looks like anymore. A Californian doesn't look like anything. People from everywhere come to California and make California their home. Even, even in the 1850s, I think they were already calling California America's America. It was actually where the world all went. Um, and so I think, I think we're getting into that. And, and that's really a struggle the United States is having. And certainly there are sort of like you were talking about, certainly when I see a U.S. election, there are ways I'd prefer it to go. Just like when there's an election in Canada or election in New Zealand or an election in Germany or an election in Israel or an election in India, there are, there are outcomes that my personal value system would prefer, but I really can't do anything about them. I can sit here and passively watch and kind of hope they turn out the way they do, but they fundamentally aren't directly connected to me. Um, and so looking at the United States as a Californian, kind of I can, I can hope it turns out a certain way, but it's not really my struggle. And again, sort of as we were talking about before, um, you know, California and the West Coast in, in general being on the periphery, if, if you just look at human history, and, 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 you know, maybe I will get some, some flack for phrasing it exactly this way, but when empires collapse, the peripheries go first. And California is basically the powerful periphery of the United States. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what the future of the United States is, but, you know, from, from everything that I can see, and this is, you know, this is where I'll put on my political, political science professor cap. I mean, the United States is on a decline. I think when we look back, the peak of the United States is going to be the 1990s. The Soviet Union had collapsed. China hadn't fully arisen yet. Islamic terrorism was still something that happened over there. You know, the United States was the unchallenged, unquestioned dominant power of the globe in the 1990s. I don't think it had anything to do with Bill Clinton. I think Clinton just happened to be president at that time. It involved a lot of things building up to his presidency. But, but I think when we look back on it, we will see that basically the time between that 10 years between the collapse of the Soviet Union and 9-11 will kind of be the pinnacle of U.S. power. And I say this not because, oh, the United States is, you know, this ruinous, horrible power, but it's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, strange way to phrase it. But I remember talking to a, a CMP supporter once, and uh, we were discussing, uh, basically, it, came, it, was a, it was a strange way to phrase it, but he said, I came around to the idea that the only, he's a, he's a, a minister, he said, the, I came around basically this idea that the only eternal, the only eternal kingdom is the kingdom of God. And if you think any nation is going to last forever, that's basically a form of idolatry. You basically think that this nation can last forever like the kingdom of God does. But if we look at human history, nations and empires rise and fall. You know, a, a, a hundred or so years ago, the sun never set on the British Empire. And now they may not even be able to hold on to Scotland in the next few decades. You know, so when I say the United States as an empire is breaking down, I'm not sitting here and chastising and pointing my finger at the United States. I'm basically saying the United States is subject to history like every other nation is, which people who worship American exceptionalism may find inherently offensive. But I'm really just saying the United States is a nation that exists in human history like every other nation, all of which over time eventually decay and maybe return. But I think at this point, California, as you say, we need to start looking out for ourselves. 
because really what's going down in the South and in the Midwest isn't part of our struggle. We have our own struggle that we need to attend to. And, you know, as we said earlier in this discussion, the more we're paying attention to, you know, riots taking place in Minneapolis, the less we're paying attention to what needs to be fixed over here. So you are a candidate for governor in the recall election coming up in a few weeks. Um, you mentioned a few um, issues earlier or a few uh, parts of your platform. Could you maybe go over just a few of the major ones again? Um, you mentioned uh, UBI and negative income tax. I have um, I have mixed feelings about that. The UBI is... To me, a lot of it depends on the ver- the particulars of it, the details. Um, I can see a UBI um, being used in a in a very negative way. Um, my personal preference, uh, especially if California was to uh, have, if it had its own currency, say right now, would be for a uh, a job guarantee uh, coordinated with a basic income guarantee. Together, the two of those. Um, my issue with a standalone UBI um, is that often right-wingers will use it as a way to completely dismantle uh, social safety nets. Um, and so that's kind of a, a red flag for me. But it, a lot of it does depend on the very particulars. You know, like how much is it going to be? How is it going to be implemented? What is it going to affect? Um, so I would have to look at the details of that. Um, but what are some of the other... Um, the other issues that are the main points of your platform about what you would do for, as governor? Yeah, and, and actually, uh, if, if you don't mind, I'll actually uh, at least never uh, to address some of those concerns because they do tie into to other parts of my campaign. So the, the UB, I, I'm going to be 100% honest myself. A, a kind of blank, naked, nothing else UBI, I'm not a particular fan of either. Uh, I have a great deal of skepticism around just the broad idea of a UBI, which is why in our party, we combine it with the notion of a negative income tax. Uh, So the way a negative income tax works is that you set an untaxed baseline. So the the one that we do is $40,000. So if you make $40,000, you pay absolutely no taxes. If you make more than $40,000, you pay a progressive income tax on what you make above $40,000. So if you make $50,000, you get taxed on that $10,000. You make, you know, 280000 you get taxed on 240000 If you make less than that, you get a guaranteed tax refund, which is half the difference of what you earned and that $40,000. So, for example, if you make $20,000, you get a guaranteed tax return of $10,000. If you make $30,000, you get a guaranteed tax return of $5,000. If you make $39,000, you get a guaranteed tax refund of $500. If you have no income, you have a guaranteed tax return of $20,000. So in essence, between this and a $500 a month UBI, you have a guaranteed basic income of $26,000 for all Californians and a guaranteed untaxed income of $46,000. And the reason a negative income tax is important and a reason why it's superior to our current system uh, is because it always incentivizes some amount of work. If you make some amount of money, you're always better off, you know, making some amount of money. If you make 20,000, then you get 10,000 back. So you've got 30,000 at the end of the year. If you earn 
28,000, you get 6,000 back. You got 34 at the end of the year. You're always a bit better off working some amount, even if you can't get a full-time job. Because the problem that we've seen so much, especially in this last year with the failure of the EDD, is that like people get on unemployment, they get on Medi-Cal, they get offered a part-time job. That part-time job maybe pays them a bit more than unemployment, but then they're off Medi-Cal. They've got to pay for covered California. Now they're actually taking home less money. There's no incentive to actually go back to work. And it all, and or, or so many people I knew who just had to have two or three part-time jobs, none of which gave them insurance or anything like that because these companies they worked for didn't want to hire full-time people because then you have to give them benefits. These people are the ones who ultimately just kind of get screwed by this system. In a negative income tax system, it actually is beneficial if you want to hold one or two or three part-time jobs or to drive for Lyft or Uber or something like that, because it still supplements your income and you still get health care through that automatic Medi-Cal enrollment. And I think the thing is, the problem with our, our so-called current social safety net is, first of all, it's horrifically inefficient. Uh, I mean, I always think I should try to get a job because I, I, I was a programmer years ago and I'm probably one of the few people who still knows how to program in COBOL. And apparently a lot of California's computer infrastructure is still in COBOL, which hasn't been used in like 40 years or something like that. So our system is remarkably inefficient. Anybody who's had to call the EDD over the past year knows that it's basically just the next six weeks of your life on a phone. I, I'm probably the only gubernatorial candidate this year who applied for unemployment. Uh, and and it, I couldn't get it uh, for various reasons that are not worth getting into. But let me have uh, but. Uh, you know, so I, I, I tried working with the EDD. I've got so many friends who've gone. My partner went through EDD. Uh, I've got and it's just this horribly inefficient system. I think there was, what, $30 billion in fraud that we're probably just never going to get back. So I think what you can do is if you take this system, if you take this UPI negative income tax Medi-Cal for all system, I think that covers a lot of what is covered by this costly and inefficient social safety net which basically treats you like a criminal for needing help. Like you got to call up, you got to prove this, you got to prove that you need this. Oh, you've got this medical care. Well, you have this medical care here and now you want this. You have to like basically justify why you need help at the time when probably you're at your absolute worst in trying to get together your life in getting this kind of assistance. Just sort of automatically setting that up, I think is substantially better than the sort of system that we have now that we think of as a, as a social safety net. And the other thing that ties into in, in other policies for the platform is I believe California needs a public bank, not one that shuts down all private banks or other. I mean, I have a credit union and stuff like that, but a public bank. There are a lot of people in California who can't make that minimum that many banks require. There are many people in California who rely on these you know, predatory check cashing places. There are many people in rural California who just simply don't have a bank nearby enough to be an efficient user. So you get a public bank. A bank of California, everybody gets their UBI and their negative tax income through that, that refund through the public bank. You know, so everybody already has a bank account. You have this California public bank that begin investing in California in infrastructure and development and technology. I think also what we really need is we need to open a new, you know, we had a Pacific Stock Exchange until the late 90s. And then we closed it right in the midst of the first dot-com boom. And now all these companies have to go out to New York to get their money for investment here in California. That's absurd. This is where we need the investment money. We should have a California stock exchange 
run by California rules without this cutthroat predatory New York stock exchange attitude and behavior. We need to get Californians investing in California again. So economically, I think all of these things kind of tie in together with that idea of UBI negative income tax. I've talked a little bit about county-based gun regulation uh, and licensing. Uh, basically, the way we do the DMV, uh, county-based, uh, you know, reducing the gas tax, uh, governmental reform in terms of, of the legislature. Uh, and, and, and yeah, uh, let's see. I, I think another big one, obviously, water. I mean, this is California. Water is, is pretty much what we're going to live off of. Uh, it, it's our lifeblood, as it is for everyone. Uh, but especially California. And we're going to have to accept that we're going to have to confront this change in our water supply, which is directly also tied to uh, the change in the wildfire season, season here. I think these two are intimately connected, of course, with the idea of climate change. I'm not going to sit here and deny climate change. I think human behavior has altered or at least sped up changes to the global uh, environment. But I would say to people who are doubtful, even if you don't fully buy into the notion of global climate change, I think anybody, especially if you've had family in California for a couple of generations, can already say this is not the California of our grandparents. Like we can't just keep pretending nothing is changing. We can sit and argue later about maybe the reasons why they're changing. But here's the thing. When you go to Democrats and you say, what are we going to do about water? What are we going to do about the wildfires? It's like, well, it's climate change. It's climate change. And Republicans are standing the way of effective climate change policy. Absolutely 100% true. But you know what? Not going to fix anything in the immediate term. If tomorrow we had a Green New Deal around the globe and everybody was doing the most environmentally thing, responsibly thing possible, the next 50 years in California are going to suck. What we're feeling right now are the consequences of decisions made in the 1970s. It takes a while for the global climate to reset. So just saying climate change, climate change, climate change, is how are you going to deal with the next 40 to 50 years of California? The fact that the temperature has gone up just enough that the snowpack in the Sierra doesn't stick around until September the way it used to, that it's starting to fall as rain, which not only doesn't accumulate, but melts the snowpack that's already there. So how do you start doing things like decentralized water collection? How do you start getting a lot of that federal land back where those dams and reservoirs and water collections are taking place? How do you get that federal land where the wildfires are taking place so that we can manage them responsibly? How do you start setting up professionally well-paid emergency services in rural communities? Because that's the problem you get with Cal Fire. It's like, how can you take a bunch of prisoners in San Luis Obispo County and send them to Inyo and expect them to know where the fire breaks are. Expect them to know the geography and the layout of the land. How can you expect them to effectively fight fires? What you need are professional firefighters and emergency services in rural communities who are the ones being hit the most by this, you know, by these wildfires. And the thing is, we need to accept the inevitability of the yearly wildfire season. Try, you know, how are we going to stop wildfires? In the immediate term, we're not. It's like trying to stop a hurricane. You can accept it's coming, you can prepare for it, you can establish infrastructure that will deal with it, and you can try to reduce the harm that will come from it. But wildfire season is going to be like tornado season or hurricane season or monsoon season in other places. And we can't just keep pointing to climate change. We need genuine solutions to how we're going to deal with that. And I feel like the Democrats, especially the Republicans, but even Democrats don't really have a solution for that. Uh, and that's, again, because they're looking at it in this broader 
U.S. battle about the about climate change with Republicans, which is very important, but doesn't directly affect the issues that are going to hit us in 2022 or 2025 or 2030, because the climate is just becoming what the climate's becoming. Um, so focus, taking, again, the reality of California's situation, taking it seriously, which is, I think, just the, the backbone, the underpinning of my entire campaign, is that we have to stop looking at California as just a small part of the U.S. puzzle. We need to take our own problems seriously. Um, you know, and again, part of that is, I think, in, in, in for, for two-thirds of California, the breakup of PG&E. I think that's fundamentally important. PG&E... We're, we're, we're literally letting a company that's a convicted murderer continue to have a monopoly on our electricity supply. So I think we need to, I think fundamentally needs to happen is PG&E needs to be broken up. In some places, it may become a publicly owned utility. In some places, that region or area, especially in rural parts, who may not have the money to have a public utility may focus on some sort of public-private partnership or something with oversight over a private utility. And I think that should be up to, you know, uh, Tehama County if they want to do that. But certainly this massive monolith of PG&E is not helping anyone except PG&E's shareholders. And it doesn't even seem to be helping them that much anymore as they continue to get, you know, as they continue to have to keep paying out for their irresponsibility. Uh, and again, I think that's one of those things that's a very California issue that's just not getting addressed, again, because Democrats take money from PG&E. Uh, but also because people are just too fundamentally focused on these on these federal issues. Um, and again, I could go off for, for for hours, if not days, on on other things. Yeah, maybe just two quick issues that you can we can wrap up on. Um, maybe you can just say just a couple of quick things. Um, what would you do about uh, housing? Uh, you know, the costs of rent is a, a big issue in California, and uh, education. I know those are those are huge issues <laughs> to answer in like two or three minutes, but um, maybe just some general comments. I'm up for the challenge. Uh, I mean, housing housing is a multiplicity. Here's the issue. Housing is an issue across California. The solutions are not necessarily identical. So, for example, so first of all, we need more housing. We could stand to build more housing, but we could also in some places do more to just make housing available. Like I said, I live in San Francisco. And I'm literally looking out my window across the street at a building where I can see eight empty apartments that have been empty since April of last year because, you know, and I've gone and looked it up because that landlord or that corporation that owns it is refusing to drop the rents in response to changing circumstances here. San Francisco needs an apartment vacancy tax. You know, yeah, you could spend a lot of money to build eight new apartments or you could put on a vacancy tax and make those people respond to the market which is supposedly what capitalism is supposed to be all about, is responding to the market, make those people rent those apartments to human beings who need somewhere to live. A house is, a home is not an investment. It's not like buying a, a Simpsons figurine and holding on to it for 10 years until it's more valuable. It's a place where people need to live. So in San Francisco, I think something like a residential vacancy tax is absolutely necessary. Does that necessarily make sense in Turlock? I don't know. I don't live in Turlock. I think they'd have to figure that out. I think one thing that we need to do is we need to get rid of Costa Hawkins. And I think the problem with the last few propositions that have tried to do that has been focusing on the rent's too damn high, which is absolutely true. But I think what's more significant is that it's a local control issue. If San Francisco wants to make anything built in the last 10 years rent controlled, that should be the will of the voters of San Francisco. 
if Merced County wants to make nothing rent controlled, okay, that's a little extreme, I guess, but that's Merced County. I don't know the housing policies of Merced County. So we definitely need to build more housing and that housing needs to be integrated with transportation infrastructure. We should be building basically mass transit and housing at the same time. We should be building these mixed use developments with you know, restaurants, bars, grocery stores, things that you just need in your day-to-day -day life already there on the ground floor of your mixed use development, right next to the train station that's gonna take you into the urban center for work, getting people off the road and people who drive cars say, why should my tax dollars pay for this thing I'm never gonna use? Because if those people aren't on the road, that makes your commute in the car better and easier. So people who drive still benefit from people getting off of the road. That's what makes it worth being paid for by everyone. So I think housing and transportation need to be integrated. Obviously, we need to we need to we need to build more housing, but I don't think we can do it in this sort of like Sacramento just tells counties and localities how much housing they have to build and where. I think that's problematic. You set targets, you incentivize, and then local communities figure out how to meet those targets. Uh, in terms of education, uh, I think I think one of the few benefits that has come from uh, the lockdown uh, over the last year and a half is is it, al it has allowed us to kind of rethink how we can do education. And certainly online teaching, I mean, I've been as, a, as, an, as an educator, I've been online teaching for the last year and a half, and it's not my favorite thing in the world to do. Uh, but it certainly has certain potentials and certain benefits that could be integrated in effectively in ways that I hope educators are thinking about and hopefully people who set education policies are thinking about. Um, I think I, I, we were talking about this uh, before before uh, we started recording, but uh, in terms of higher education, I think one of the big things that sets back so many young Californians is the massive amount of debt they have to get into to acquire a four-year degree. Uh, my, my partner, it's one of my favorite lines of hers. She, she talks about, I hate how they call it financial aid. It makes it sound all warm and fuzzy. It's a diploma mortgage. Most of the kids I teach at San Francisco State University are getting diploma mortgages that they're going to be paying off for the first 10 years of their adult life. So I think what we need to do is we need to have a system of, first of all, free community college. That any California who wants to go to community college can go there and get their two-year AA degree combined with vocational training. We have a tendency to denigrate vocational training lately, and I don't know why. I don't see anything wrong with being a plumber. Or an, let me tell you this: when your toilet's not working, a plumber doesn't seem so you know like such a bad job. You know, electricians and plumbers. My cousins work in construction. These are important jobs, especially if we're going to be building a whole bunch of new housing. So I think you you. You treat community colleges as a place where those who desire it can go for free and get general education as adults that teach them basic things about science, about how their government works, and teaches them a trade. And if the trade that you want to get into is academia and you have the GPA to sustain it, after your two or, two or three years of community college, you can transfer in with a good enough GPA for free into a four-year. And then if what your training is wants, you know, needs four year training, you can go and do that. But I think this idea that we have that basically everybody needs to get a four year degree, what that does is it turns a four year degree into a high school degree of 35 years ago, except you got your high school degree for free. And again, now so much of San Francisco State I see is God bless them. They're working so hard, but they're taking 
18 units a semester to try to get through it as fast and quickly and cheaply as possible, not necessarily learning anything just because they know they have to have that bachelor's degree to be competitive in the workplace. And so I think another thing we could do is we could make it so that employers can only ask about educational background to the extent that it is relevant to the job. Because I think this emphasis on the four-year degree, which of course has begun costing so much money to these students, is what leads these, you know, so they, they basically have to work for 10 years to pay off this college degree. You know, maybe eventually after saving enough money, they can get a house, pay that off in 30, 35 years or whatever. And then they're retired having basically spent their entire life paying off these two things. So I think, you know, it's interesting that you said housing and education because they are basically the two biggest debt sinks for Californians throughout their adult life. And so we really need to find ways to reform that if we want the cost of living and affordability in California to be better. Because at this point, Californians, a lot of them are just spending their entire adult life paying home, paying off the degree, diplomas and home. Uh, and so anything we can do to make that less of a burden on everyday Californians, I think can only be beneficial for, for all of us. Agreed. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, talking with me and uh, wish you good luck with uh, the election. And um, can you uh, maybe, as we're closing out, uh, let people know where they can find out more or uh, if there's a website for CNP, um, that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if, if what you've heard sounds interesting uh, and you'd like to learn more, my, my gubernatorial campaign website is www.lobesforca.com. That's L-O-E as an elephant, B as in balloon S. Basically Lisa Loeb, but with an S at the end. Uh, so lobesforca.com. Uh, and you can also uh, find out more about the CMP at www.votecnp.org. Uh, and we have our full platform on there. Information about how you can register with our party, which is really the most important thing you can do because we're trying to seek qualified status which means we need about 70,000 people uh, to be willing to register with the party, which you have to do by checking the box that says other and writing in exactly California space, national space party. because It's like a write-in vote. The Department of Elections and the Secretary of State won't accept it if it's not perfect. Uh, so you can learn about how to register with the party if you're interested in that. Uh, and uh, of course we have the, the standard uh, social media out there, you can just do a, do a Google search for California National Party uh, or for my name, Michael Loeb, and, and learn more about all of that. I think you have a YouTube channel too, the party? Yeah, uh, CM, yeah CMP has a, has a YouTube channel. We recently had our virtual uh, convention stream through there. Uh, and if you go to, uh, if you go to our, our website at votecmp.org, we have a whole page. Uh, devoted to links to to our various social medias, both statewide and regional. Okay, thanks again, and um, I'm not don't want to put you on the spot, but maybe we can have you back in a few months or so. So, since this is a California podcast, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd be I'd be happy to. So, uh, so yeah, thank thank you, thank you as well for for having me today. <laughs>